No, you're fine. Thank you. <laughs> Buenos dias, mis hermanos. En pasada semana, nosotros fuimos en Costa Rica because we're, we're wanting to plant a church in Trenton and it was important for us to practice our Spanish. I mean, someone had to go to Costa Rica to, I mean, just be sure we're ready to go to Trenton. Actually, our daughter, Mariah, is studying to be a physician assistant at Arcadia University and she's doing one of her rotations at an inner city clinic in Costa Rica. So Tammy and I were able to go down and spend a week with her and we would appreciate your prayer. She's in a pretty impoverished area working in a clinic. It didn't look real safe to me, but God's got his hand on her and so we appreciate it and we had a really good time. So it's good to be back. Glad to see everybody. And we will continue our study this morning in the book of Romans, in Romans chapter 6. But as you're turning in your Bible to Romans 6 and our ushers are coming, if you don't have a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll be glad to, to share one with you. You're welcome to keep this Bible. I have a confession to make. Some of you may not know this, but I am an addict in recovery. But you know what? We're all addicts in recovery. We're all in recovery from the power of sin. Now, some people are addicts in recovery from a substance. But what the Bible teaches is that all of us Christians are addicts in recovery. Because Jesus said that whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. Peter said it this way in 2 Peter chapter 2, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And what we learn from the Bible is that when Adam committed the original sin and he partook of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that his nature was deeply changed. He not only inherited a condemnation and a guilt that would make us all worthy of hell, but he also inherited a corrupt disposition that made us addicts to sin. Now, the good news of the gospel is that the Bible doesn't just tell us that God wants to free us from the penalty of sin. That's Romans 1 through 4. We've, we've moved from that now. We've learned that God has provided justification, that Christ, when he went to that cross, died in our place so that we could be forgiven because none of us is good enough for heaven. And we learned that we've been justified as a gift by his grace through faith in the finished work of Christ. But what we're looking at now in chapters 5 through 8 is that the, the heart of the gospel justification doesn't stop there. There's a, there's a hope in the gospel. There's a hope that in the future I'm going to be transformed into the image of Christ, but in the present I'm being transformed into the image of Christ. And the Bible calls this sanctification. I want you to look with me in chapter 6 and verse 22. Paul says, Having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, you derive your benefit resulting in sanctification and the outcome, eternal life. Romans chapter 6 is a, is a really important chapter in the book of Romans. In fact, Watchman Nee, and though I don't agree with some of his teachings, he said Romans 6 is the gospel for the Christian. He said Romans 1 through 4 is the gospel for the unchristian because we learn that the blood of Christ pays for the penalty of our sin. But in Romans chapter 6, we learn that the cross of Christ also deals with the power of our sin, and God shows us how he has a, a committed purpose in our lives to change us into the image of Christ. So sanctification is, is 
is different from justification. Justification is instantaneous. When you believe in Christ, when you're converted, when you repent and you, you turn to the Lord and you trust him as your Lord and Savior, at that moment, you're justified. You are declared righteous by God. You are completely forgiven of your past, present, and future. But it sets in motion a process of sanctification, and sanctification is ongoing. It's not optional. And one of the problems with Christianity in America is that people have made this great separation between justification and sanctification. Yeah, you raise your hand and you accept Jesus as your Lord and Savior, but some people decide to go on and become his disciples and grow, and then others, they just sort of never get there. That's entirely opposite of what scripture teaches. And so what we're going to learn this morning is that God has provided a new power for us. He has provided for us in the gospel the fact that we're new persons and we have a new purpose and we have a new freedom that will enable us to begin this process of obeying Jesus and being changed. And so what we're going to look at, as, as Pastor Jonathan shared on, on um, last Sunday, is that there's these two great representatives of humanity, Adam and Christ. And we're born in Adam. And because we're in Adam, we have all of the, the benefits and, and consequences of being in Adam. We're condemned. And by his disobedience, the many were made sinners. And we continued that process, owing nothing but, but, but death. That, that's what was waiting for us. But because we're now in Christ... What we're going to learn this morning is we now have the possibility, the potential, the power as new persons to become free from those old sinful habits and to become more and more like Christ. And so let's pray, and then we're going to start in chapter 6, verse 1. Heavenly Father, thank you so much that we are in recovery from, some here are in recovery from substance, but all of us are in recovery from sin. Thank you for the great work of the cross that Christ did so much more than just pay for our sin. But he took us in himself so that we would die and be buried and raised from the dead to walk in the newness of life. And thank you, Father, for this great truth of the gospel. And I pray that we will see the practical implications of it. For we ask it in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. Start with me in verse 1. Paul says, what then shall we say? Are we to continue in sin that grace might increase? Now, we noted that when God gave the law, last week, Pastor Jonathan, you, you see how the text said in chapter 5 that the law brought about more transgression. But that was ultimately that the grace of the gospel would be multiplied. And so many people, after hearing the gospel, this is, a, this is the right question you should ask. Wait, you're telling me that I can be forgiven for free? It's all a gift by God's grace? I don't have to do anything I understand why people go, well then, can I just do whatever I want then? And Paul anticipates that. Are we going to continue in sin? Are we going to exploit sin because that will bring more grace? And Paul goes, of course not. May it never be. And now he tells us why Christians should not and will not. No true Christian will continue in a pattern of uninterrupted and habitual lifestyle of sin. Because God has done something fundamentally transformative inside of us. Look at verse 2. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? 
Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism into death. In order that as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so, now now notice this, this is important, so we too might walk in newness of life. I want you to to start with this phrase in verse 3, do you not know? Now, the reality is, for many Christians, they would say, no, I, I actually, I didn't know that. And so one thing that we learn about the scriptures is that doctrinal information is the foundation for transformation. If we just tell people, hey, you know what, now that you're saved, just go out and be like Jesus, that doesn't work. We have to learn what the scriptures teach about our resources and what God has done for us. And as I reflect on these truths, Paul says, once you know them, then you consider them to be true and you act on them. So for some of you, you may have never known this, you may have never heard this. For some of you, you're like, yeah, I remember reading about this, but it hasn't worked so much, or I haven't given enough thought to it, or I just needed to be reminded to put myself in the place that God wants me to be so that I can respond to his work. So what we learn here is that something happened at our conversion that you didn't feel it. You didn't go, when you got saved, I think I just died and rose from the dead. But what we learn is that God has transformed us and moved us. This is not just mind over matter, little red train. I think I can, I think I can. God's saying, don't you know that when you became a Christian, something happened? He says, you and I were crucified with Christ. We're going to talk about what he means by through baptism. But, but the idea he's going to tell us in verses 5 and 6 is that I was united with Christ in his death. And, and we'll look at the implications. Look at verse, verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Now, here's that knowledge again. Knowing this, that our old self, literally, it's our old man. Some of you may have the King James Bible. Our old man was crucified with him. In fact, some fellow one day came to the conclusion that the Apostle Paul's father was the thief on the cross. Because no one's ever been able to identify a thief on the cross. So how do you know that? He says, because I read it in Romans 6. Paul said, my old man was crucified with Christ. No. No. But this is a really important truth. What What does God mean when he says, listen, don't you know that your old person, your old man, was crucified with him? Well, I think a starting point would be to say something like this. I've, I've found the best illustration I could come up with, was two, with would be a transplant of, of, a, of a plant. I've got two pots here. This big pot is called Adam, and this big pot says Christ on us. And you, you and I were born into Adam. And so whatever was true of Adam, the soil and the roots of Adam, we grew up in that sphere. The Bible says in Adam all die. right? So, so being in Adam, my old man, is who I was before I was a Christian. I was dead in my sin. I was a slave to sin. I was destined for condemnation. But the Bible says that when I became a Christian, God took my old man, all that I was before I was a Christian. And that old person went up to the cross and was crucified with Christ. And then that old man was laid aside and and I was raised up with him to walk in the newness of life. And so now I'm in a new sphere. I'm in Christ. I'm connected to Christ. And so it would be be fair to say 
that person that I was before I was a Christian is absolutely no longer in existence. He's dead. Okay? So, what are the implications of that? Well, before we talk about that, I want, to, I want you to notice, why does Paul mention baptism here? Why, why does he say that we've been buried with him through baptism? One commentator said, put your finger on verses 3 and 4 and see if you feel any water. Is Paul talking here about water baptism? I think it, it's important to understand that baptism in the New Testament is an outward symbol of something that happened inwardly. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 12, 13, by one spirit we're all baptized into the body of Christ. And so there's, there's an inner baptism and then there's an external baptism that takes place when we, when we go under the water. But one of the things that, what, that you won't find in the New Testament is any distinction between conversion and baptism. In the New Testament, when someone was converted, they were baptized. They didn't go, oh yeah, I got saved uh, three years ago. I, I didn't really want to get baptized, so I waited three years later. It, it, it happened at conversion. And so Paul's primary point here is not so much that your water baptism is when this happened. It was at your conversion. Now, I didn't know this until I learned this, that something wonderful happened to me when I became a Christian, that God took who I used to be, the old Tom, and he killed him with Christ. And then he raised me up through the glory of Christ's resurrection. Now, verse 6 is important because I need to understand what he means in the next phrase. So my old person that I was in Adam was crucified with him. Why? So that my body of sin might be done away with. Now, I want to talk about both phrases, the body of sin and what it means to be done away with. You could translate this, my sinful body. I don't think that's probably what Paul in mind, has in mind here. I think what he probably has in mind is this. When he says my body of sin, he's simply saying my body or my life, which was characterized by being dominated by sin. Okay? Now, everybody before they're a Christian is dominated by sin. It doesn't mean they're murderers. It doesn't mean they're drug addicts. It simply means that their whole orientation is to just live the way they want to live in rebellion against God. It's really kind of just a Burger King thing. You have it your way, not God's way. And the Bible calls that our body of sin, our body characterized by sin. And unbelievers have no potential to change that. We're gonna learn from Romans chapter eight that, that without Christ, people are unwilling and unable and hostile to God. They can't submit to God. And so most of the people on this planet are marching around in deliberate rebellion against God and their body is characterized by expressions of sin. But when I became a Christian, my body of sin, my body characterized by sin, Paul says it was done away with. Now, what exactly does he mean by done away with? That word can mean completely abolished. It can mean nullified in the sense of made powerless. And there's a lot of debate in Christian circles as to what Paul's primary point here is. And I think the best thing that, that I could say is this, is that though my, my body characterized by sin has been crucified and done away with, it doesn't mean that there isn't a remaining struggle with sin. But maybe this illustration would help. If, if Campus Crusade used to have a, a tract of four spiritual laws, they still, they still use it, and it had a little, a little throne on it, and on that throne it had the letter S, and it stood for self. And then they said, when you became a Christian, 
self came off the throne and then Christ sat on the throne. It might be better to say that my body characterized by sin was done away with in the sense that it was dethroned from its dominion and its authority and its power over me. But it's one thing to annihilate and to exterminate Saddam Hussein, right? But it would be another thing to depose him, but he would still be operating covert guerrilla operations where he would try, he would attempt to regain his power. So, so I think what God's telling us here is this, that when you became a Christian, who you were has been done away with, that lifestyle characterized by uninterrupted sin has been broken, and now you and I have the potential and the capacity to walk in a new life, to live a different way, so that we don't have to say, oh, I can't change that area, or that's just the way that I am. We're in this process, but it starts with this information. There's no commandments here. It's just, don't you know this? Don't you know this? This is what you, you and I need to know, so that this will then set the groundwork. Well, what am I supposed to do about it? Well, let's keep reading verse 7. For he who has died is freed from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him. And here's that knowledge again. Knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Now we have the first commandment in the book of Romans. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Now this information becomes practical. What am I supposed to do with this? Well, Paul says, consider yourselves. Now, by the way, for some of you, you might be like, what do you mean consider yourself? Well, frankly, if, let's just take those two words, consider yourself. Most of us do a wonderful job of that. In fact, I would probably say all of us. We consider ourselves frequently, don't we? We think about ourselves. We look in the mirror. We have a formulation of our self-image. And we think about ourselves. And what we think about ourselves often ends up transferring into how we live as ourselves. In other words, our beliefs about ourselves has a foundational influence on our behavior as ourselves. Now, you might be th thinking to yourself, oh, Tom, are you going to get into that psychobabble stuff? No. I'm going to tell you what the Bible says. You and I need to consider. This is a commandment. The word consider means to reckon. In fact, I would suggest that it's almost similar to saying you need to continue to believe this to be true. And the reason why we need to believe this to be true is because it fundamentally doesn't always feel this way. Right? So an analogy might be something like this. If a person says, well, sometimes I don't feel saved. Well, you're not saved when you feel saved. You believe the gospel. Nor are we free from sin when we feel free from sin. You believe what God says. He says that you and I have been crucified and raised. We're now in Christ. I'm now a new person. I have a new heart. I have a new potential. I have the new possibility, as Paul says, to live in newness of life. 
So what am I supposed to do about it? Well, Paul says, number one, you need to believe it and you need to keep reminding yourself that you're not just some stinking sinner who God happened to forgive, that you're a new person in Christ. And then Paul brings it down to an even more practical level and he says, now, let's talk about how this is going to work. The next time you begin to feel the pull of sin, of remaining sin, it might be towards anger. You know, some of you are like... I know God doesn't want me to curse, but, you know, I just get so mad. For some of you, it might be some sexual thing, lust, porn, immorality, fornication. It could be any, any number of things. For some of you, it might be idolatry, uh, just putting other things before God. It might be greed. It might be selfishness. It might be pride. All of us have these desires, these formulations, these things inside of us are pulling us in, in the wrong direction away from God. And, and, and if you think just coming to church and going, okay, Pastor Tom told me I just need to go home and love my wife. Okay, I'm going to do that. We all know how well that works, right? As C.S. Lewis once said, if you want to find out how bad you really are, just try really hard to be good. So Christianity is not a little red train theology that says, listen, if you just try a little bit harder, you could do it. Christianity says, I'm fundamentally a wreck, but now that I'm a Christian, hey, wait a minute. I've been crucified with Christ. I'm a new person in Christ. I'm connected with Christ. I have a new heart, a new life, a new disposition. Under the new covenant, God is drawing me to himself, so I need to believe that. But here's where, that, here's where the application comes up. As you and I struggle with individual sins, Paul, Paul personifies sin as an old master who's trying to get back in charge of your life. Look at verse 12. He says, therefore, don't let sin reign in your mortal body that you should obey its lusts. So, so picture sin as, as coming and wanting to dominate you again. To, to, uh, people with addictions can understand this, that strong pull to say, I've got to have my substance of choice. But the reality is we all go, I've got to have my sin of choice. And Paul says, don't let it dominate you anymore. Don't, don't obey its desires anymore. Do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness. Now, that's very practical. Think of your hands, your feet, your eyes, your mind, your heart, your soul, your emotions. These things have a wonderful potential to be instruments to be used by God. But they also have the potential to be instruments to be used by sin. Our sexuality, our heart's pursuits, all of these things are either being presented to God or being presented to sin. And so this transformative work that God's done, he says, now here's what I want you to do. I want you to believe that this is true and then live it out. So as you're feeling the pull towards sin, don't yield to that, but rather, he says, present yourselves to God. Now, this isn't a once and for all, one and done deal. This is an ongoing process. In fact, to try to make this more, more real in my life for the last few years, as I pray, I frequently will literally put my arms out like this when I'm talking to the Lord and say, Lord, I'm presenting my, my body to you. I want, I want to be used by you. Does that make sense? Now, I heard a wonderful illustration of this years ago, and I think it just really kind of brings out this, this whole idea of learning true information and then acting upon it. Remember back during the, the, the history of the, 
the Civil War and, and, and the, the terrible black eye of American culture that, that we had slavery. And thank God for Abraham Lincoln and for the Emancipation Proclamation, right? But remember that when, when Lincoln made that Emancipation Proclamation, that didn't get tweeted out. It didn't go out on CNN. Nobody had cell phones. Nobody saw it on Facebook. And so the moment he made that declaration, the slaves were free. But how many of them had any idea that this was true? And how long did it take before that true information came to them? And imagine the very day that that information came to them as they're maybe out there working in the cotton field, filling their gunny sack, and, and a slave from another plantation comes along and says, what are you doing? And he says, what do you mean, what am I doing? And he says, we don't have to obey the master anymore. Well, well, what are you talking about? For many people, they knew nothing else. That was their whole life. And so even as, 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 they, as they began to grapple with the truth that they were free, even knowing that, imagine how difficult it was to walk away from the plantation. Now, every illustration breaks down, but, but, but I doubt every master of every plantation said, may I help you on your way? I imagine they resisted them. I imagine some of them abused them. And frankly, one of the reasons why it was very difficult to walk away from the, the, the plantation, where are you going to go? That was a great social problem in American history was it wasn't just like, oh, thank God all the slaves are free. What are we going to do with them? Where are they going to go? Where are they going to work? Where are they going to live? How are they going to survive? And so in the same way, God is, is confronting you and me, and he's saying, why would you continue to live as though you're, you're a slave to sin? Why would you continue to practice and give yourself over to these habits that, that are only enslaving and shameful? Instead, don't you know that you're free? So believe that to be true and learn to present yourself to me in an ongoing practical way. And so Paul's going to go on and he's going to try to make this very, very practical for us by using an illustration from slavery. The problem with illustrations is that they always break down if you chase them too far. So as Paul uses slavery in the rest of this chapter, I want you to notice verse 19. He says, I'm speaking in human terms because of the weakness of your flesh. And I think what he means by that is, don't carry this slavery illustration too far so that, so that your entire way that you view your relationship with God is just a slave. Okay, Because you're, a Christian is not just a slave. A Christian is a child of God. A Christian is a forgiven saint. A Christian has Christ living in them. We have this intimate relationship with God. We're dearly loved by him. So Paul says, I'm using this because it's good, but I'm using it because all of us, because of our sinful minds, spiritual truths sometimes need to be put into things like parables and illustrations. So, Let's look at what Paul says. Beginning in verse 14, he says, sin shall not be master over you. So that's the key. He's telling us, look, you don't need to be dominated by those habits that you're going, I can't change. This isn't just true of those of you who are struggling with substance. Some of you are struggling with sex. Some of you are struggling with pride, fear, anger. You don't want to forgive someone. Sin doesn't have to dominate your life anymore. And the reason is, Paul says, is you're not under law, but under grace. Now, we're going to talk about that more when we come to chapter 7. But this, this, this fear, this, this lifestyle of living under grace doesn't mean that there are no laws. 
It doesn't mean that there aren't any moral expectations on behalf of God. God's not going, hey, now that you're forgiven, there's no laws. Do whatever you want. But we learn that in Christ, we have the capacity now to fulfill the, what God desires, to love him and to love others. Well, how do we do that? Paul says, well, let's talk about that. He says, don't you know, verse 16, that when you present yourselves to someone as slaves for obedience, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin resulting in death or of obedience resulting in righteousness. Now, first of all, that might seem kind of strange to say present yourself to someone as slaves because if you think of slavery in American history, nobody was presenting themselves. People were forcefully and grotesquely ripped from their own environment and, and forced to be slaves. But in this setting, in, at this time in Roman culture, there were more slaves than there were free people. And slavery wasn't always something that was externally forced upon someone. Many people chose slavery because they had no other options for survival. Now, it certainly wasn't fun, but some slaves were able to earn enough money to save up and buy their emancipation. In fact, Paul talked about that in 1 Corinthians 7. He says, were you, were you called to Christ while you're a slave? Don't worry about it. If you're able to become free, that's great. Go ahead and do that. So, so the, the concept of presenting yourself as a slave wasn't something that they weren't familiar with. But what I want you to see here is this is a wonderful illustration of a great lie that Satan has caused a lot of Americans, especially young people, to believe. And that is that there's a door number three. There is no third door. There is no third option. There's either door number one. I will continue to live my way for myself. And the Bible calls that to be a slave of sin. And, and the scripture says that's going to spiral you down. It's only going to lead to eternal death. Door number two is to turn to Christ, to repent and believe in him, to be forgiven, and now to begin to be a, a slave of Christ. You see, somehow our young people have this idea where they go, I'm tired of everyone telling me what to do. I don't want God telling me what to do. I don't want my parents want me telling. I don't want my teachers. I don't want the government. I just want to be free. I'm not saying I want to go out and be bad. I just don't want anyone telling me what to do. And this, this rebellious, fomenting lie springs up and, 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 and it and it comes out in our music. Years ago, the rock and roll song, signs, signs, everywhere there's signs, blocking out the scenery, breaking my mind, do this, don't do that, can't you read the signs? And so, so we get this lie in our mind that, I'm, I'm tired of everyone telling me what to do. And God's going, well, here's the deal. There's only two options. If you will not submit yourself to me, then you're submitting yourself to sin and its destructive consequences. But here's the glory of the gospel. Look at verse 17. Paul says, But thanks be to God that though you were slaves of sin, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. What did he just say? This is how we describe Christianity. Hey, how did Vacation Bible School go? Great! 28 kids got saved. Can you imagine somebody saying, 28 kids became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which they were committed. What? 
But I, I want us to think about what that means because that, my friends, is, is a description of conversion. And there's several really wonderful truths within here. First of all, what we learn is that conversion, Paul says, is an obedience from the heart. In other words, conversion is a, is a choice of the will. The Bible says in Romans 1, Paul goes, my gospel is to bring about the obedience of faith. The Bible says anyone who doesn't obey the gospel will suffer the penalty of eternal destruction. So obedience from the heart to the gospel is a willingness to turn and to trust in Christ. But then Paul says that gospel that, that, that you, you became obedient he, he shows us in this passage that, it, that it's all by the grace of God, that this wasn't something that you just decided one day to do. Notice how he describes it. He says, you became obedient from the heart to that form of teaching to which you were committed. Now, what's really interesting is I would have thought he would have said this. You became obedient to the heart to the teaching of the gospel. You committed yourself to the gospel. But he doesn't say that. He says, it's a form of teaching to which you were committed. And the idea is, well, how did I become committed to that form of teaching? Because God drew you. God was the one who, who opened your eyes. God is the one who committed you to that form of teaching. And it's interesting that he doesn't just call it the teaching of the gospel, because it's the form of teaching, because the, the word here, form, is the Greek word tupos, that has the idea of an, of an impression that is made. And so, when you and I became Christians, God worked in our hearts in such a way that, that we were willing to turn and trust and believe and obey and to become transformed by the teaching of the gospel. And Paul says, thank God for that. And if you're Christian right now, you and I should be going, thank you, God. Most of the people on this planet of 7 billion are still living for themselves, but I thank you that the gospel came to me and, and that you drew me to yourself. And then he says in verse 18, and having been freed from sin, you became slaves of righteousness. And he says this, I'm speaking in human terms. I, I, he says, I know I'm using an illustration that's inadequate, but he says, think about it. Just as you presented your members as slaves to impurity and lawlessness, resulting in lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness resulting in sanctification. What a graphic way of, of describing living for yourself. Hey, what are you going to do tonight? Oh, I'm going to go out partying. Oh, you mean you're going to go out and present yourself as a slave to lawlessness? What are you going to do tonight? I'm going to just sit on Facebook all night and whine and complain and indulge myself. Oh, you're just going to present yourself as a slave to lawlessness? And by the way, one of the things we learn about sin is, is that it has an increasing domination in our lives. That there's no passivity that says, I can dabble in sin and I can withdraw at any time. Because Paul says, when you present yourself to lawlessness, it results in lawlessness. And this is how addiction happens. But it's not just substance addiction. It's sin addiction. Peter said, by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And some of you have have become enslaved and, and you've been dabbling in, in sin and you're finding that it's having an increasing powerful influence in your life. And Paul says, so now as a Christian, stop doing that. Present yourself 
as a slave to righteousness, verse 19, because that results in sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. This is why many people will say, you know, when I became a Christian, things started to bother me. Stuff that didn't used to bother me. You know why it didn't used to bother you? Because you were free in regards to righteousness. You didn't have a new heart. You weren't a new creature in Christ. You weren't connected with God. But now that you and I are, the will of God matters to us. We want to learn to please God. We want to do what's right. So I don't want to downplay the struggle, but what Paul does is in the last three verses is, is he's trying to implore us to say, listen, this is, this is heart and soul, rubber meets the road Christianity. Either you're going to get up each day and you're going to learn how the gospel of God's grace continually draws us to obedience and surrender to God, or you're going to continue to live for yourself and experience the consequences of that. So look at verse 21. He says, therefore, what benefit were you then deriving from the things of which you are now ashamed We sometimes speak of skeletons in our closet. You and I all have things in our past of which we're ashamed. Sometimes those things in our past of which we're ashamed, sadly and painfully, other people know about it. And that even compounds our shame. But all of us have things in our past that whether anybody else knows about it, we're ashamed. And those of us who were converted later on in life have things in our life that we just will always live with. We're forgiven. But Paul says, so so let's, let's go back and think about your life before Christianity. He goes, so how was that? Living, doing what you want, whether it was an affair, whether it was partying, whether it was practice, you know, lying or stealing or, or, or just any manner of thing, just living a, a self-indulgent life or pride. You've often heard me say this, though I disagree often with Dr. Phil, I think this is Dr. Phil saying, how was that working for you? Isn't that really what he's saying? He goes, as you were a slave of sin, how was that working for you? But I do want to say this because I think that some of you this morning, simply knowing what the Bible teaches about the human heart and knowing what goes on in our world, that some of you are living in in deep private shame, sometimes over things that really you, you, you really don't have a reason to be ashamed of. Particularly this happens in the realm of abuse. We have to talk about that. Sexual abuse is rampant in our culture, even in America. And there are so many people, both guys and girls, who have had things happen to them that have deeply and traumatically impacted them. And they don't know what to do with it. And sometimes they feel enormous guilt and shame that somehow it was their fault. And Satan loves to keep people in his bondage and in his lies that, yeah, it's your fault and you're a filthy animal. And if anyone ever knew this about you, you would be deeply rejected. I want to encourage you this morning that if, if, if somehow you have these areas in your life to talk to someone. Jesus said it's his truth that will set you free. And, and the gospel is, is a gospel for sinners. It's for broken people. It's for people who have been sinned against and it's for people who have sinned against others. And sometimes as hurt people, we then go out and we hurt people. But you'll often hear me say that the, the, the church is a hospital. It's where sinners come for help. 
And so if you're living with some shame of which you've never ever felt that you could share with anyone, the Lord is, is speaking to you this morning and saying, get help. Talk to someone. Don't live in that darkness of shame any longer. So think back, and, and you know, some of you are going, Pastor, yeah, so you don't get it. I was saved when I was five years old. I keep having to remind myself we have an unusual congregation. See, I was saved at 17, so there's, it's easy for me to remember the things of which I was ashamed. Many of you were saved at four and five when you were reading Francis Schaeffer, Escape from Reason. <laughs> the plausible arguments of the resurrection convinced you, Mother, I believe I need to turn my life over to Christ. But for a few of us lowlives who got saved later on, we can identify with habits that we're now ashamed of. So if, by the grace of God, you were spared that and converted at, at a young age, that's another thing to celebrate. And young people, I want to really encourage you. If you haven't gone out and done your thing and lived wildly, and somehow you're hearing other people get up and say, you know, I did this, this, and this, and it's stupid, don't do it, I wasn't happy, money won't make you happy. Listen, sin is fun. Otherwise, people wouldn't be practicing it. But the consequences are devastating. And so there's no reason why you need to find that out the hard way. There's no reason why you need to go, yeah, 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 I know money doesn't make you happy, but I want to find out the hard way. The Bible says Moses, as he grew up, he chose to forsake the passing pleasures of sin. And if you're a young person here and you're a parent, encourage your children. Don't tell them, oh, it's no fun, but, but help them to think through the long-term implications. Help them to wrestle with the realities of we reap what we sow and that some things have lifelong consequences and pray and urge and encourage them to allow God to be, to be early on the Lord of their lives, to remember their creator while they're young. But regardless, whenever you were saved by grace, thank God that he brought us to himself. Now, the application, Paul says in verse 22, having been freed from sin and enslaved to God, now you derive your benefit. Because if you're a Christian, now you're, 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 you're attached to Christ and you're deriving the benefit, sanctification. You're becoming like Christ. And the outcome of that is eternal life. For Paul says, if you continue to live, endure number one for yourself, he says, payday's coming. The wages of sin is death. Even slaves at time got wages. And if you just keep living for yourself, payday's coming. The wages of sin is death. You're spiraling down and you're going to spend eternity separated from God in a place called the lake of fire. But if you're a Christian, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So in closing, I want to encourage you to number one, remind yourself frequently that you're a new person in Christ. The Bible says, consider yourself to be dead to sin. Memorize some of these verses. Sing about them. The songwriter Charles Wesley said, long my imprisoned spirit lay fast bound in sin and nature's night, but your eye sent forth a life-giving ray and I woke the dungeon flamed with light. My chains fell off. My heart was free. And I rose, went forth, and followed thee. The songwriter said, I'd rather have Jesus than wealth and land. I'd rather be led 
by his nail-pierced hand than to be the king of a vast domain, but be held in sin's dread sway. I'd rather have Jesus than anything this world affords today. So number one, remind yourself this week. Pray over it. God, I'm a new person. Thank you, Lord. Thank you that I'm dead to sin and alive to God. And then secondly, begin to learn to practice yielding yourself to God. God will have situations this week where you're going to make a choice. What are you going to do? Are you going to continue in those same patterns that are destroying your marriage, destroying your soul? Or are you going to learn to present yourself to God? And think of the implications because he says, when you present yourself to God, your body now becomes an instrument of righteousness. This week, the Lord is sending each one of us back to our home, back to our jobs, back to our family, back to our situations, and some of them are difficult, but we're, we're there as new people in Christ. We're there with the great potential and possibility of being used by God to bring others to this great forgiveness and freedom in Christ. So Paul says, what'll it be? Do you want to continue the things that you've been ashamed of? Do you want to continue to live for yourself? Or Christian brothers and sisters, he says, yield yourself to God. And so I'd like us to pray this morning that as we close, for some of you are like, oh, I already know this stuff. Well, it's not just something that we know from a long time ago. It's something we constantly need to rehearse and speak the gospel into one another's lives. So if nothing else, the gospel of Christ calls out to each one of our hearts, recalculating, recalculating. Surrender to Jesus who gave his life for us. Let's bow in prayer together. Maybe you're here this morning and God's speaking to your heart and, and you understand the implications now of what it means to be a Christian. This morning in our first service, a lady truly and clearly seemed to make a, a genuine decision to give her life to Christ. And I want to urge you this morning while our heads are bowed, if God's spoken to you and, and you realize now that you've just lived for yourself or you've even tried being religious and now you understand that you need to be freed from your sin and you believe that Christ died and rose for you. Right there in your heart, the best you know how. Just say to Jesus, Lord, I believe that you died for my sin. And I come to you the best I know how in faith to trust you, to invite you to be my Lord and my Savior and to set me free so that as a forgiven person, I can live my life for you. With every head bowed and every eye closed, if that's your decision this morning, I want to I pray for you and I want to give you a little booklet. So I'm going to ask if you would just look up at me and raise your hand. If you really, really get it this morning, if God has spoken to your heart, you're saying, I want to begin a new life in Christ. Is there anyone this morning? I won't belabor it. If you want to talk to someone, just let us know. And then secondly, maybe some of you are literally struggling with a substance addiction. Do you see the application of this passage? Sin addiction is not a disease, and the gospel has power. And I want to encourage those of you that are in recovery to yield yourself to Christ, not some higher power, but Jesus, the Lord of all. Surrender your will to him and trust him completely. And then for all of us, Take a moment just to thank God for delivering you over to Christ. And being forgiven and set free, let's present ourselves as a church. Present your members to Christ afresh.
Lord, we're your family. We're your children. Thank you so much for forgiving us. Thank you so much that we're a work in progress. Thank you so much that those things of which we're now ashamed, there is no condemnation anymore. We are free. We are forgiven. So I pray for your great blessing on the saints of Bible Fellowship that as we go forth this week, that we will walk in faith, believing that we have been set free with Christ. And when those struggles with sin come our way, Lord, may we yield ourselves to God. As we continue to study, may we learn of the enabling power of the Holy Spirit. Father, thank you so much that you didn't leave us down here to grovel, leave us down here to try our best to change. But you transformed us and transferred us over to Christ. Send out your people, Lord, each week and each day, each moment. May we present ourselves to you so that we can be a blessing and we can reach other people. We can love others and serve you faithfully until Jesus comes back. Thank you, Father, for the powerful gospel and what you're doing in our hearts, I pray. And all God's people said, amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.